Thank you for listening to sermons by Chaplain Braswell. This ministry desires to help people know and live for Christ through the preaching of God's Word. And now, today's message. Good morning. Y'all want to have a seat? I am Chaplain Jeremiah Verdon. I am the 303rd EOD Chaplain. We are ready to protect. Just so you know, that's what we do. Um, we are going through a series. We're looking at songs you should still be singing. So songs you should still be singing. Uh, <coughs> I'm interested to see what you end up thinking about this one. So we're singing songs you should be still be singing. That's the idea. I am very, very interested to see what you think about this psalm and whether or not you'll be singing it. Um, we're going to go to Psalm chapter 2. We're going to go to Psalm chapter 2. Now, when I was putting this together, please get your Bibles. Please look at this. This is going to be very fun for me. Uh, it's very interesting. When I started putting together this series, one of my intentions, one of our intentions was that we would show you that there are different genres of psalms as there are different different genres of songs. And you have to read those a little bit differently. You have to see them that they have uh, themes. They have different things that they are trying to say. Like as a hymn would just be praise and worship to the Lord. A lament would be speaking of sorrow something that's sad. We'll, we'll be dealing with laments pretty soon. I think those are great psalms for us to look through. We'll look at uh, rejoicings where we're just like, hey, look at this awesome thing for that we did. And I have, and I got to where I was doing a lament and I realized that that lament very closely mirrored what we were going through at 9-11. And I decided that I should probably, we should probably deal with that one on September 10th. So as I started looking, I'm just giving you a little picture there's a type of psalm called a royal psalm they're called royal psalms and i just thought you know what is the most royalist psalm that i can find so i went to psalms chapter two <coughs> and as i was reading it i was i was putting it together i started thinking oh no some people are not going to like this psalm there's going to be a very serious portion of people that are going to say, I don't like that. I don't like that. You shouldn't preach that. And I, I got to tell you, there's a very serious part of me that said, okay, people are going to be unhappy with the personality that God demonstrates in this psalm. So maybe I should just, you know, back off a little bit. But I, I don't know if you know me very well. That's not really within my actual character. So I decided I'm going to preach it even harder. We're going to go even Mohada on what he says, because what you see in Psalm chapter 2 is very powerful in how you respond to who God is. Now, there's something very interesting that you need to know about what a royal psalm is. The royal psalms, the way you read them, is what it is primarily dealing with is the king of Israel has been anointed by God, and it talks about the authority of the anointing, the anointed of God, the one who has been anointed of God. 
And we read that and we, we don't have a king. We don't have an anointed by God. Literally, and, and this is a very specific Israel's anointed king. They would have sent in like Nathan or one of the prophets. They would have brought oil. They would the, the prophet would have come in. The king would have been there. And the prophet would have used the literal words of God and said, I anoint you as the chosen king of Israel. Where do we see that in this world? Nowhere. That doesn't exist. So you're like, well, what in the world? How are we supposed to do this? In order for you to understand that, in order for us to work through that, I need to do a little, we got to do a little bit of homework here. The purpose of Israel was to one day bring about the Messiah, the anointed one, the Messiah. The word literally translated the anointed one. And that anointed one being Christ. The second purpose of Israel was to be a picture of the kingdom of God. The anointed king in authority over Israel. The Levites doing sacrifices paying for the sins of the kingdom. It's a picture. It's not the end all. It's not the be all. It's a type. You would look at it and say, oh, one day that's going to be crazy awesome. And then when we see Jesus come, Jesus fulfills the picture of the sacrifice and is also seen as the anointed one. So when we deal with, and I'm going to do some work, and we're going to do a little bit of work today. I want to show you throughout Scripture where Jesus is the anointed king. He is. That's who he is. And who is the king over? You. Everyone. Jesus is the anointed king of this world. When he came, the first time he came as the sacrifice. And what we are going to see, I think the point of this psalm ends up being, is that Jesus is God's... Y'all can write this down. You can carry it around with you if you want to. Jesus is God's anointed, and you do not want to be in rebellion against him. That's what this psalm says. This psalm says, there is an anointed, and you do not want to be in rebellion against him. Against him. And when I read this song, I was like, there's not a whole lot. And even when I was reading my outline to Rachel, my wife, who is responsible for a lot of the good things you hear in my sermons, and I'm responsible for the rest. And when I was reading it to the preaching team, who, if you hear any analogies, because my brain doesn't work in analogies, I'm like the guy from Guardians of the Galaxy. Just go over my head. I just don't deal with analogy. I just deal with fact. If you hear an analogy, they probably do it. And all of us, all of us were looking and saying, okay, where's the good feeling, good news part of this psalm? And I kept going, but it's not there. And I can't, I, I had, a, I had a, a preacher, preaching teacher, Dr. Horn, um, I use his name as a cuss word often, but he would say to me like, uh, I would present a, a lesson and he'd say, well, where's that in the text? I'm like, well, it's implied. He goes, oh, so it's your opinion. 
Oh, yeah, well, I don't care about your opinion. Nobody cares about your opinion. What's the text say? If you're going to say, thus saith the Lord, the Lord had best have said. So what we're going to do is we're going to treat the scripture with respect and say what it says. And that's it, right? Y'all tracking with me? Would y'all rather I got up here and gave you my opinions? I am a really good speaker when it comes to my opinions. I can talk to you about grass. I can talk to you about the proper length of grass. I can talk to you about who's the best football team. And I'll be wrong, but I'll feel it sincerely. However, this is not that. And we cannot treat God's word that way. So what we end up with is a psalm. And I know y'all are already thinking it. Uh, it's in chiastic structure, right? Y'all were thinking that with me. Man, I was looking at this psalm and that was chiastic structure. No, chiastic structure is the way that the... Israelites would often have written things, and the way it goes is the main point of the entire thing is dead center of the text, and you end up with supporting details going on the outside. And what we're going to see is it goes man's action, God's respo response, center point, God's action, your response. So we're going to have your response at the end, okay? And here's what we have. is What we have is that, so that David is trying to say, why do men rebel against God? So let's get into the text. This is it. Verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The king of earth set themselves and, and, they, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, <coughs> let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he speaks to them in wrath and terrifies them in fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So, here's my question. Where's the touchy-feely goody part of that psalm? Where's the part of that psalm you're like, oh, I read that as my morning devotion so I feel good about myself. It's not in there, but it is. That psalm is where? It's in the Bible. Bible. And I think we do it in injustice when we say, well, I'm only going to preach the touchy-feely happy parts. Or we say, I'm only going to bring down the hammer. Instead, we should read the entire context of the word. Of the word yeah. And we should preach the whole scripture. And we should preach it as if it was the word of God. Because as Christians, we believe that God spoke it, men wrote it, we read it, and we're responsible to it. Yeah. The whole thing. Yeah. Right? So the first thing he says is you look at David, he says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against the anointed. 
I want you to feel that David is, is flabbergasted that there are those who would dare to plot against the anointed of God. Flabbergasted. That's a fun word. Yeah. It's the only word I can think of for David. And I want you to think about who David was. David, who wrote this psalm, was the king who was anointed by God. He was also a shepherd boy who was a musician who killed Goliath, cut off his head, and ran off his brothers, got known for that while Saul killed his thousands, he killed his tens of thousands, became the heir to the throne, anointed by the prophets, became hated by Saul, the king was hunted by Saul the king and on two different occasions got close enough to Saul to cut a piece of clothes off of him, to make a mark, to just say, hey, I was here, bro, and I didn't kill you. And when all of his friends said, he's hunting you, you've already been anointed by God as the upcoming king, why didn't you just kill him and get it over with? His response was always some version of who am I to lay hands on the anointed of God? Because if God put him there and God is perfect and God is in charge, if I go against the anointed of God, who am I going against? God. And I pretty much wouldn't dare do that. Even so, even to the point that when Saul died and, and the relatives of Saul died and a man came giving David the news that the house of Saul was dying and he was so proud of it. He's like, ah, the house of Saul is dying. Isn't that wonderful? That's awesome. Uh, I was part of it, by the way. David killed the man who was happy that the anointed of God had died. David is sitting there as now the anointed of God, and he's not like, how dare you plot against me? He's saying, there's a God, and you are in open rebellion to this God, and I just cannot fathom why that would be. Why would you do that? He was just absolutely confused. Like, like, why in the world would you do that? But he answers his own question. He says, why do you do that? And he says this, first starting in verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together and against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So, he has a little process. <coughs> the unspoken part of this process is you start complaining about the fact that you are in, that you are beholding to the king. I don't like it. 
I don't like that he tells me what to do. I don't like that I have to do his rules. I don't like it. So inevitably, whenever people don't like something, who do they end up talking to? The other people who also don't like it. You get to talking to people who don't like it, and they agree with you because they're just as dumb as you, so y'all are just together filling yourself up with all this hatred, and you get to talking to each other. You know what? I don't like it. And I don't like it either. I'm not doing it anymore. So then he says, I'm going to burst apart the cords and the bonds, which in Hosea, he says, I led them with cords of love and with bond, cords of kindness and bonds of love, by the way, just off to the side. So you know which cords and which bonds they're breaking, kindness and love. And they say, I don't like it, so I'm going to break those bonds. I'm over it. I'm not doing it anymore. I am not doing what you say to do. So what, what this reminds me of is when I was little, you know, when you're first, I, I, I don't remember this. My mom tells the story all the time that when I was just old enough to be indignant and just old enough to have an opinion, but barely old enough to talk. Because that's how early it starts, those of you who don't have kids yet. My dad had told me to do something. So I run to my mom and I say, Mom, Dad's telling me. And she goes, well, I reckon you should probably do what he says. But that's the picture. What am I looking for from my mom? I'm looking for her to agree with me. Mom, Dad's telling me, no, he didn't. Let's go tell him we're not doing it. That would, I don't know. Y'all don't know my dad, but that would have gone over very poorly. But instead of doing that, she said, well, I'm going to stand with your dad, and I guess you'd best go clean your room. But we have this thing where we all start murmuring and talking and trying to find other people, and you just mix it in as if God isn't God. As if God didn't create the whole world. As if God didn't sustain the whole world. As if God didn't flood the whole world because they, we did, they did that before. As if this personality of God, where he says, you will obey me because I am God, doesn't exist. And we murmur and we say, I don't like it, I don't like it, I don't like this part, I don't like that part. And we get together and we start talking. So they say, I don't like it. I'm not doing it. They don't like that they're being told what to do. So who are they speaking to? They're speaking to the king of Israel. And I want to just go ahead and drive the home the point that the one that we speak to when we do this is Jesus. There's a story in Acts chapter 1. If you want to turn there, you can. Acts chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 23 through 26. And Peter is preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all of the, the Hebrew leaders that hate the idea that Jesus rose again come in and say, stop it. Cut it out. And what Peter does, he gets up and says, I'm not going to stop it. I'm not going to cut it out. I'm going to preach it even harder right here. Jesus rose and you killed him. So then, they, then the, the Hebrew leaders say, stop it or we're going to get you. And everybody disperses. In verse 23, it says, When they were released, 
They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them? Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, By the Holy Spirit, just by the way, David wrote it, it was the Holy Spirit who said it. That's what he's saying. Why did the Gentiles rage and plot in vain? The king of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against the anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant who you anointed. So you see right here in the book of Acts, the followers of Jesus quoting Acts chapter 2 saying who Jesus was and that Jesus is the anointed of God. That's it. That's who we're talking about. So if you take this psalm and we translate it over and they say, How, why are people uh, standing in opposition to the King Jesus here? So let me translate this for you. For you today, Jesus is the anointed king. You don't like you may not like, maybe you're listening to this, you're like, I don't get it either. Why would you disagree with the anointed? But this is if you're on the other side. Jesus is the anointed king. You don't like that you are beholding to him. You talk to your friends and they don't like it either. So you say, I'm not answering to him. It doesn't fit today's society. That makes me feel bad, so I don't like it. And then you get together, you rebel, and then you castigate anybody who decides to follow Jesus? Have we seen that in our society? We have, haven't we? Actively. I can't go online to find a preacher and listen to a preacher without listening to the next video where somebody is castigating and belittling and hateful to the name of Jesus Christ. And their answer on why is because I want to do this, and he says I can't. And I don't like it. And we see it. So what is God's response to this? Right? So, like, I feel like what I would love to say, what I want to preach, I want to get down, we want to do this right here. Come down, guys. And if that's you, he still loves you. And you're okay. And you'll get there sooner or later. Just do you and we'll be us and we'll be here for you when you get done. That ain't what he says. That is not what he says. That's what I want to say. That is not what he says. This is what he says. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And everybody goes, but Jesus loves me. Right? Yeah, he does. But I don't know if you know this, but a good father who loves his children disciplines his children. And a good general who wants to see what is good happen doesn't allow his people to just do whatever they want. And a good leader doesn't go, oh, you wanted to have candy? You can have candy. 
A good one says, no, I'm in charge here. You're not in charge here. I'm in charge. And you can come to me and say, you don't like it if you want. Here's my response. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care that you don't like it. There's a story that I... I I think about this story. This is a personal story. This is this is what a judge told me I had to do. He said I had to give at least one personal story to relate to the crowd. So here we go. My personal story is the one time that I can remember feeling derision. And I think about it probably about once every two to three months. And it hurts my feelings every time. It is from when I was in sixth grade. I'm in sixth grade. I'm at the basketball court. And you got to understand that in sixth grade, I was literally the smallest person in my class except for Renee Bumgardner, the female. Literally everyone else was bigger than me in sixth grade. I had a year. I had a September birthday, which meant that I was a year ahead and everybody was bigger than me. And I'm playing basketball with my friend Nathan Wren, who is a giant, and against these other guys who are jerks. And they really enjoyed beating on me to see how long I would go before I told on them. So this day I decided I'm not having it. I'm going to I'm going to say something. I'm going to say something right now. And I said something to this dude who was about almost six feet tall in sixth grade while I am just waiting to hit five feet. Please let me hit five feet tall, God. And I'm just waiting. He's six feet tall. And he mouths off. And I mouth off back. I'm like, oh, yeah? What? He goes, what are you doing? I was like, you're not going to talk to me any kind of way. I'm going to come at you. He goes, if you do, what are you going to do? Punch me in the leg? What are we doing here? Stop. I said, fine, let's go. And he steps to me like this. All he does is this. He goes, and I ran. Just Nathan Wren is sitting right here, and I did this number. And he looks at me, and he goes, ha! And just kept playing basketball. I spent the next 40 years of my, no, I'm not that old yet. I spent the next 30 years of my life making sure I never felt that again. I remember in seventh grade, the guy who was still like 16, 17 years old and still in seventh grade mouthed off to me. I stood there. I was like, all right, here it comes. I'm not running away. Took the hit because I never wanted to feel the shame. I never wanted to feel the fear. I never wanted to feel the humiliation of being stood in derision by someone who could take me out. I'd rather he just took me out. It's shaped like the whole next like 15, 20 years of my life by that one event. And God says, that's, you're going to stand against me? Okay. No. Not only am I going to laugh at you, put you in derision, the word derision meaning contentious, ridicule, and mockery. Put you in derision I'm going to speak through wrath and fury. And this is what I want to say. This, this, this is the interesting thing. Everybody wants to say, oh, well, that Old Testament God, he sure was rough. The Old Testament God, 
he had some things that he wanted to say. New Testament God, you know, cut kittens and puppy dogs. But that Old Testament God, he was rough. No, look at this, Malachi 3.6. For the Lord, for I the Lord do not change. James 1.7. For good gifts and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You want to see wrath in the New Testament? Read Romans 1, 18 through 20, where he says, y'all did not respect me, so I gave you over in wrath. You want to see love in the Old Testament? You go to um, the promises that God gave Abraham, where he tells Abraham, I am going to bless all of the nations through you. And we want to pretend as if this God who came to die for us stopped being himself after he sacrificed his son, his son on the cross. He did not. He maintained all of his attributes. None of his attributes changed. Do you not understand that the God that created the universe is infinite? Try to put that in your brain because you can't. Which means that the love that he has for you is infinite. But if you fall under his wrath, it is... Come on, y'all can say it. Infinite. There's both. He is love. He is 100% love. And you have to understand that if his love is infinite and his wrath is infinite, then we have a problem, don't we? Do you think you can solve it? No, you can't. You can't solve it. And because you can't solve it, Almighty God sent his son to be a human being. To come down, to be put on a cross, to take the infinite wrath of God in that moment so that he could bridge the gap that we continually look at him and put between us and we say, I don't want what you have. And he says, but I've already bridged that gap at the cross and I give it to you to accept and you can have it. Yep. It is a gift. And all you have to do is look at God and say, yep, you're God. Yes. And you died for me and I decide to follow you. And he says, we're good. Because Jesus took that wrath, that infinite wrath. But then we come to the center point. Where he says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion's hill. That's the center of this whole thing. The whole point is, yeah, but you want to... You want to rebel against David? You can. But don't forget that I'm God and he's my representation. I have set him. Yes. Me. I have. And then when we look at Jesus and we say, but I don't like what Jesus says. He says, yeah, but, but you don't understand. I anointed him. That's the answer. That's the whole answer. You're not understanding. I'm God. And I anointed. I anointed. That should just shut down all the arguments. The argument's over. 
You walk up, my, when, when I walked up to my mom, said, Mom, Dad's telling me. She was like, yeah, but he's your dad, so be quiet and go do what he says. But I don't like what he's saying. I anointed. And we have to look at the words of Jesus when he is the anointed. And you say, but I don't like what he says. They don't fit today's society. They don't fit what, that, what I want them to say. I like this part, but not this part. I like this, but not this. I like that he loves me. I don't like that he's in charge. I like that he gave us marriage. I don't like that he made rules for marriage. I like that he gives us food. I don't like that I have to work for it. So I'm just rebelling against what he said. And what we do is we take the word of God and we step on it and say, I'm in charge. Me, I get to be in charge. And God says, don't you understand that I anointed Jesus, and when he spoke, I spoke, and when he said something, I said something, and you are not going to stand on those words as if you are in authority to them, and if you want to rebel against that, I laugh at you and put you in derision and wrath. That's the answer. But he goes even further, <coughs> where he says, He's talking to, to, to David. He says, I will tell of the decree that the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Which you can find in 2 Samuel 7, 14, if you're a note taker, that the kings of earth, uh, of, of Israel, were, be, were adopted sons of God in the picture. And you shall... And I, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with the rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like the potter's vessel. So what we see is that David's position is the adopted son of God. And if we look at Acts 13.32, it says, And we bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us children by raising Jesus. And also it is written, in the second psalm, so we know we got the numbering right, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then in Hebrews 1.5 limits this to Jesus. says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then we see the actions of Jesus in the end times in Revelation, where he says, And the armies of the heavens array in fine line, and white, pure, white and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And he says, If you stay strong and stand with Jesus... Revelations 2, 25 through 27. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who, who keeps my works until the end to him, <coughs> I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as my, I myself have received the authority of heaven. Jesus is the anointed king. You can disagree with him if you want, but it will not work out well. Jesus came to earth as the propitiation for our sins, and he is coming again. But when he comes back, he's not coming back as a sacrifice. He's coming back as the king anointed by God. 
And he says, if you stand firm with me, you will be on the side of the king anointed by God. Here's your encouragement. Stand firm in the Lord. It doesn't go out of style. No matter what year it was written. Because the God of the universe is timeless. And he didn't change the Bible. He gave it to us and said, stand firm in the king, anointed king of the universe, and I will be with you. It might be hard, but stand on the promises, stand on the authority, stand on the anointing of God. But if you don't, and here's his last little words of wisdom. Here's, your inv here's his invitation. Be wise. Serve the Lord. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son and take refuge in Him. Here's David's, David's he says this, he says, here's, here's your invitation. Place yourself under the authority of the king who would die for you. Or place yourself in the path of his wrath. Those are your options. And everybody, I feel like I run into this all the time and I know what time it is. I'm sorry. I knew I was going to do this and I'm sorry, but I'm not. I am. I actually am. Here it is. This is it. As I speak to people all the time, all the time in my battalion, and they bring it up and they know I'm a Christian, they play their favorite game, which is called Stump the Chaplain, which I don't mind because it allows me to say the gospel in big rooms while they try to make fun of me. I just, okay, fine, let's go. And what they always want to say is, I say, but God gives you a choice. He asks you to choose him. They go, but it's not a choice, is it? It's not a choice. You're being, you're being ridiculous. It's not a choice. The, the, the Christian faith is silly because the choice isn't really a choice, is it? It's either follow God or, 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 or wrath. So that's not, and I think that we are so hell-bent on this democratic process where we get to be the ones that are in charge of our own selves, where we stand up to kings and say, I'm in charge, king. And we just forget the fact that the king of the universe didn't get beaten in the Revolutionary War. He didn't get destroyed. He, in fact, stood there as the king that gave America America, and America didn't be king the authority over God. God is the authority over all things, and yes, I'm telling you, there's no choice. Follow Jesus or be in his wrath. That's it. Those are your choices, and if you don't like it, it doesn't change. Period. And you're not going to make fun of me at work and me feel bad. I'll walk out saying, okay, revelations, my bad. Guess we'll see how it works out. My tears will be for weeping for those who refuse to take him as the king of the universe. My prayer for you today is be wise. And praise man, y'all can come up. Too edgy to keep going. Praise man, come up. Here's my prayer for you. Make the king of the universe your king. Because he moved the mountains and the cosmos and the difference between God and man to know you.
But if you say no, he's not going to sit there crying, going, oh, no, you told me no. He's going to hold you in derision. Both are true. Turn it over to the praise band.